feast on this one. Conceptuality is something other than itself. There's been a change in the image of thought. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's the internal structure of becoming. As soon as an utterance slips from the mouth, it's divorced from the subject. For me, the biggest thing in this, the, the paradigmatic example for this for me in Plato's pharmacy has been the Egypt stuff. Like, I've read that essay five or six times, let's say, in, in my life, and I had never really paid attention to the Egypt stuff. Like, mm -hmm. that, that yeah. whole chunk on the Egyptian mythology. You know, I scanned it and I kind of, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's references. I didn't realize, like, how important it is, right, for this whole notion of what counts as a text, right? Like. Mm -hmm. So is this in Plato or is it not in Plato? And is yeah. it logic? I mean, you know, the problematizing of the mythos logos mm -hmm. distinction. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, that Egyptian stuff is like it's absolutely central. That's why we never left the text. Never left the text, never left right? The like it, yeah. it, right? But it feels. I mean, at least for me, for the first few times in reading it, it was like, oh yeah, this is some. So this is Derrida showing that he did his homework and finding a couple of interesting connections. Um, but it's like, no, it's actually. This is, is this in the text or is it not in the text? Why or why not? Like what? Mm -hmm. and, and really, especially for the whole mythos logos distinction, it's like if the, if the logic of the father, son and all that, like the relations are implicit in the mythology or explicit in the mythology, then that is like, that's assumed, you know, in, in, uh, um, in general into logos, right? Yeah. Like, so this whole question of a, even a distinction between not not even in opposition but just a distinction between them just becomes impossible to maintain right right like the mythos logos story is like it's mm -hmm. just it just becomes ridiculous like there aren't two different things right there yeah. is just a mishmash of you know difference right right well i mean i think in terms of doing this for an episode you know this text is so familiar to the all three of us that you know we've read it, taught it, you know, like written on it, that right. the question fittingly, you know, for a lot of different reasons is where do you even start with something like this know, you know, in terms of recording an episode on it? Right. Well, I mean, I also feel like, you know, on, on some level, we could just talk about the first page, right? Like the, the mm -hmm. first page and the issues of textuality that he sets up there are, you know, like, and I, the, the, the assignment that I gave the class and this worked really well is because I, you know, talked through, I told you what I'd been doing of like taking notes, whatever. I had them do that only with the first page. So this was my first time giving them an exercise, a writing exercise. So they did that with the first page. And so the first like 20 minutes of class was them reading what they'd come up with on the first page. So my summary of the first page was just summary stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to let you guys cover the first page and then I'm going to cover the next 50, you know, um, mm -hmm. so which was fine. I mean, it, it worked out fine and they they loved it. I mean, well, I mean, to the extent that you can ever glean that. But they it was it was definitely generative for everyone who at least tried to do it. How often is the pharmacon actually mentioned or alluded to in the text, in Plato's text itself? Like, is this a classic example of deconstruction where Derrida takes seemingly a small sort of part or function of a text and articulates it as constitutive of the entire movement of the text itself? Or is the pharmacon actually sort of a central theme? 
That's well, I mean, that's one of the arguments he makes early on, yeah. right? Is he says, like, look, this isn't just a thing that's an add-on at the end of the text. Yeah. It actually is called for from one end to the other. Right. So when he first introduces the myth, like, the, the word is there in, yeah. in, in multiple places. Yeah. Um, Very early so on. It's, it, yeah. But it's right, like really yeah. early on. But it's never been interpreted in this way, right? Like readings of the Phaedrus oh, have never right. done this. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like I mean, because traditionally the um, the attention to writing is thought of as an appendix, something that's right. unnecessary. In fact, in a lot of scholarship, you know, the entire second half of the dialogue is sort of superfluous mm-hmm. you know which is again yeah. like either because he was too young or too right. old you know this is a badly formed dialogue and that That's it's right. really about it's, it's about love it's about eros mm-hmm. uh, the, right. the real takeaway is the um uh, the myth of the charioteer that's the sort of like key content mm-hmm. and then sort of like in the back half you know he is either sort of he's just sort of like shaking his fists at the sophists because screw them yeah that's right. the way it's i think most frequently taken up right Right. But, you know, I mean, the irony, I think, in terms of the rhetoric folks is that, like, the second half is just straightforwardly yeah. about the sophists, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's, it's the tone has totally changed, right? There's a much more di- didactic relation between Socrates and, and Phaedrus. Um, but I love, I mean, honestly, I, I really have always felt when I teach it that, that one paragraph where he says, uh, like, the hypothesis of a well-formed um, uh, uh, text naturally reveals new concordances, right? Like it, the point at which you just stop presuming mm-hmm. that it's a bad text right. because the two halves don't hang together is the point at which you start discovering stuff. And like mm-hmm. to me, that's just the like as a life ethics. I mean, yeah. certainly as a textual ethics, but also just in general, like pretend for a moment this thing is really well done, right? Mm-hmm. Like pretend that it's organized well, even if you think that it's organized poorly, pretend it's organized well, and what will happen is you're going to find that there's interesting resonances, connections, developments, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, as a, as a sort of ethics of generosity in terms of how, certainly how one reads, but also just encountering others, like, hey, I think that's a shitty thing. It's like, what if, what if it wasn't? What if it wasn't a mistake? Right. right and it's, like, and it's yeah. not about like it actually being well put together or not being not shitty, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't matter. It, it ends up actually yeah. just thoroughly being a heuristic. As, well, and, you know, and as frankly, a and, but that's the invention. cool part to me is even if you begin from the heuristic sort of instrumental approach, which is like, I'm going to approach this as if, as you get into it, you start going like, and you start discovering these con- these connections and relations, and you start going, well, hold on a second. Maybe maybe I'm not treating it as if. Maybe I'm actually discovering something that was there that I was unable to see because I assumed it was poorly constructed. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly to me the point that he wants you to get at, which is like you stop knowing what the text is. Yeah. Right? Like it's is this me doing this to the text or is this the text doing it to me? And that's the whole point of that first page is like those right. are bad choices. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's not going to be subject-object relation. That's the the nexus of of you know, whatever reader text that mm-hmm. uh, uh, conjun- and again, that's even a bad way of saying it, right? Because it presumes the pre-existence of these discrete entities. But it's that nexus where you're like, I don't know if this is me doing this to the text, the text doing this to me, because those are those categories aren't adequate. Like you realize the extent to which 
you know, the critique of intuitionism in here, like the things that I think that I think fundamentally are produced, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. to me, mm-hmm. those things have huge implications for how you fucking live in the world, right? Like, sure. <laughs> well, it's created a far more ambiguous Plato for me, sitting right, like sitting oh, with yeah. the, 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 the Phaedrus and writing on it so long is that, yeah. you know, like at some, in some ways, you know, that we're going to distill it, you know, the, you know, Plato was traditionally taken up as, as you know, this is the, the dialogue on love. Derrida shows that, you know, in spite of Derrida, that, that this is actually about the pharmacon, the problem of the supplement, and Plato seems to be trying to an attempt to, like, to control the thing, but what is demonstrated is that right. it's ultimately right. uncontrollable. And then the longer I sit with it, I'm like... I don't know if it's simply in spite of him that like, right. you know, that like that right. the, um, at the very end of Plato's pharmacy where he gives that little um, sort of parable of, of Plato's pharmacy of imagining Plato in, right. in the pharmacy messing around with all of the, the chemical concoctions and, you know, loses control over them. You know, I increasingly see that as him not losing control over them, but sort of like right. carefully experimenting with the right. like, like, with with the you know with, with the material on on hand and and like I don't I truly don't know if that's me seeing that if that's Plato doing that if that's only right. is able to emerge in response to Derrida right so and and the ambiguity is not a problem for me in fact I dread losing that ambiguity yeah yeah right and and you know what's interesting to me because I was very conscious when I taught this a couple of weeks ago I was very conscious of your of your reading, right? Because I, I, you know, and that, that, because to me, your reading kind of twists the screw one more, like mm-hmm. one more turn. So instead of in spite of Plato, his the pharmacon does these other things. You're sort of saying it's not in spite of Plato. That's what Plato is doing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, reading Derrida this time, for the most part, it is a tone of in spite of Plato. But there are absolutely moments in there yeah. where he's just like, no, 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 Plato is fucking setting this thing on fire, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. Plato is provoking by bringing it into being. Plato is provoking the play of oppositionality. That that's the mm-hmm. that's the game that Plato is playing in that mm-hmm. regard. You know? yeah. and I'm like, whoa. So so, and that's an interest. That's interesting for me because that comes I, in my for me that came from your reading of it. Like, <laughs> period. Mm-hmm. Right, like that's where I first thought that thought, um, yeah. and yet I now see it in Derrida's writing, yeah. mm-hmm. and I'm like, you know, so we got these yeah. next level sort of mixes of yeah. whose is that? But is that? Well, and especially because my capacity to read it this way only happened because you were my supervisor, right? <laughs> right, right. So that's even that's even weird. That's even more impossible. It's like, fuck, <laughs> right, right. right. But is the, is is Nathaniel's is your more generous reading? Is that attributing agency to Plato? Like, is that is yeah. that being more generous to Plato than Derrida is, or is it sort of just saying in some ways what Derrida is at points, like you mentioned, John, that the text allows for these complexities to emerge, like even when he's trying to control them via opposition, like that still allows for the play of of the right. concept in, in the way that you're saying 
Is that kind well, of I'm like just not, that's, here. To me, that's a whole. Th- yeah. yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, I'm. Awesome. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say, I, like, I see Plato less as like the person with intentions, and just yeah. more like what the sort of the the text is is, is doing, right? Yeah. And so the the way that Derrida often but not always articulates the text is as like losing control of yeah. its attempt to control itself, right? Mm-hmm. And, but why not you know, go? Like, but, but let's take the next step. Why not go to Plato's intentions? Why not say like seriously? Why not? To me, the next step is like, well, if it's textuality, so are his intentions. Yeah. Right? They are not something extra textual. And so if that's the case, why not say, no, 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 this is Plato meant to do this. Like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, certainly that makes possible. just as much sense, right? Yeah. Right, so, so, certainly sorry, possible. But like, but for, it's it's far more interesting for me to think of it through like the functioning of the dialectic, right? Is that you know the way that Derrida and Deleuze and others tend to think about the dialectic it is it's it's a stabilizing mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. It needs to find the, the 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 proper source on which to. It's like like is it like the the. Uh, Descartes project, you know, you need to find find yeah. the sure foundation that you can then build on. Yeah. And the more I engage, like the the like the Socratic dialectic, the like any of Plato's dialogues, it's just more like no, these are machines that run ad infinitum. That that right. they are constantly whatever they touch, they remake, and they remake again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And you know, so much of Plato's scholarship I read, it's always about like the question is always where do we stop, right? Where like did this dialogue get to that firm foundation? Did it get to it and then move beyond it and have some kind of supplement that wasn't important? You know, usually somewhere around like two thirds of the dialogue, you know, like the the foundationalist reader of Plato will say like, aha, he got to it there, you know, like it's in, you know, like in the Gorgias, it's in the articulation of, you know, that analogy between um, uh, the arts of maintenance and, and, and medicine and the arts of like, um, sophist or like judgment and like the, the, the spiritual and bodily arts like thing. And then it's like everything else all, all after that is just an elaboration of that. And the, the, I'm increasingly reading, it's like, no, everything after that is a mutation of that. Right yeah. and and has no st- and the mutations never have a stopping point. The dialectic is that kind of like is is like a a um, you know the the mad scientific invention like an yeah. intervention into something. Yeah. There's the perpetual adding of a supplement. It's never about finding a sure ground. And so like if you want to attribute like like yeah that's what Plato did mm-hmm. over and yeah. over. Like how does how does something like the law of the excluded middle never ever ever find a stable ground? Because it is an right, effective movement. Mm. Right, right. That's the only thing that ever happens, right? Yeah. Right. So in that sense, you could say, perhaps, that the Phaedrus is not about establishing some sort of foundation for philosophy or for life or for ethics, right. but it's about, it's literally about the play of textuality. Like that it's is not what about, it's about anything. It is doing the play of textuality. Yeah. It is, right, doing, right, right, it is yeah. doing the living of thought, yeah. right? Yeah. But in that sense, the content would have to be like you would be reading the content through that style, like through that style or movement. Like they wouldn't, you wouldn't be separating them from each other. So even when he's talking mm-hmm. about oppositions that seem, he seems to be instantiating some sort of foundational concept. Like the thread is textuality and movement, yeah. which is what runs yeah. through it. Yeah. You know, one way of, one way of invoking movement is to install op- oppositions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you really, I mean, I really get the, again, I haven't read Plato in a while, but like you really get the sense in Hegel, 
that he is at moments trying to establish some sort of ground, but then the text writes itself. Like he writes himself mm -hmm. out of the ground sentence after sentence, right? And it sort of spirals that way. Um, and I'm sure you could read Plato that way as well. Well, this is that, like, you know, the, me... I was just gonna say the differentiation between Plato and the writing becomes a very problem. That's where the, 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 the distinction between the two becomes far less interesting. Like, like it's not, not Plato, but it's not Plato either. That, you know, like one version of Plato might really want to find that foundation, but the other version of Plato that is committed to running the dialectic never ever allows him to do it. Mm -hmm. You say the same thing about Hegel. Yeah. But that's, that's where I like, I mean, I'm getting to this point. I don't really like it yet, but I'm working my way to this point. I kind of like locating it in Plato the person, like as, mm -hmm. an, as a kind of next move, which is like make the intentional, with all of the caveats that we'd have to make, yeah. right? But make the intentional argument because Plato's intention would be the very movement that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. why not say Plato's intention was to set this movement into place? And, and how, about, how about this? Plato's conscious intention. In other words, like even narrow it down yeah, to that. Yeah, Again, yeah. we'd have to do lots of provisions about how we're using those terms, but yeah. why not even why not even go there, right? Like it's and because I think that Derrida at some level almost is, because he's like, this is conceptuality. This is not fucking mm -hmm. like Plato is just a sort of place where we're, you know, locating mm -hmm. this and, and working this through. Hegel could be another one, right? Like, I mean, seriously, there's yeah. no no I see it in that regard, no difference, yeah. right? Like, um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, like, why not just say, rather than thinking, as, as I always have, is that Derrida was claiming that despite uh, Plato's intentions and goals, writing itself has this mm -hmm. wild force. And it's like, in, rather reframe that thing and think of Plato's intentions as being constituted by that wild force. They're writing, yeah, yeah. Right. So there is no domestication. Now, here's the thing that I think is important: is that there is a particular value structure that comes out of Plato that is not simply writing, which is sort of paternity, originality, like all of these sort of that particular hierarchy that emerges, yes, it's undercut by writing, but it's also established by writing. And mm -hmm. that doesn't have to be the case. Like, one, while one can't get rid of the movement of difference and writing that constitutes that sort of wild movement, one can produce a wild movement differently, right? Like with a different arcade let's say. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that just to slow down what you were saying before is that one problem of like the concept of the death of the author is it installs too final of a dot binary between the writing yeah, and... that's right. And right, because now it's the text, the, now the we say it's the text itself right, that yeah. does this. It's like, right, no, yeah. it's not the text itself. So right. if you begin with the proposition that the writer is constituted by the writing of the text, which means it's not... Right. It's not stabilized and independent of the writing in either because it's the writing is just an instrument or because the writing is its own agency neither because there is a particular communication between the two that is mutually constitutive mm -hmm. then something like intentionality emerges very differently and you could even just like yeah. do some work on the word of like the the internalization of tension right that there is yeah. a tension intention oh that's good yeah, i like right. that yeah, yeah, intention. Yeah, like, 
because cute. because you know if you're a theory person you have to put unnecessary dashes <laughs> yeah. and slashes um but like there's an there like th this movement is only made possible by the convergence of you know it's maybe not an opposition but like you know like some kind of desire to find a foundation and some kind of movement of that dialectical movement of of sort of like creating inst installing oppositions in order to reveal that foundation right. and that the communication between those two is an intention and just the cool thing about that right. intention is it yeah. produces perpetual movement <laughs> yeah yeah. yeah, a very particular yeah. style of perpetual movement yeah. that yields itself with a concern for genealogy and, and purity mm -hmm. and all this right, and that's and, and it's but it's yeah, but it doesn't have to right. Like it, it could be to. so you could say like yeah, like that intention could play itself out differently, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't yeah. have to have now what it has to have. It has to have hierarchy. It has to have opposition. It mm -hmm. has to have a lot. Like it has to have all mm -hmm. of those quote unquote freeze framing effects. Yeah. But it doesn't have to freeze frame them. In this way, like mm -hmm. we could have a maternal structure, for example, mm -hmm. like as he yeah. points to in the Timaeus a little bit rather than a paternal like and that would look different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it would still be a structure. It would still be organized by logic. It would still be opposition. Like it would still have all of those mm -hmm. you know, predicates, but it wouldn't have the same yeah. kind of content, I guess. Well, I think, mm -hmm. yeah, obviously there's various ways to stabilize difference or orient towards difference. But I think right. the difficulty of the platonic orientation is that it is, at least generally speaking, kind of an archetypical orientation yeah. where, like, sure. where difference part of the conceptual dynamics of difference is the domestication of difference. So like, that's right. right you that's don't right. just get to op openly play in the wildness of that's differential right. relations. You're always right. making cuts and stabilizing and domesticating. Once you bring, I mean, he's, he said there's a great yeah. sentence in there. It's like once Plato brought it into being, right. meaning into actuality, then it was a game of oppositions, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and so, and by the way, it's that's even a bad way of saying it because it implies that there's some, some pre, like that's where you got to really own. There is nothing. Difference really is, in a strict mm -hmm. sense, is difference really is nothing. There is not like some because even when we talk about it, it's like well, there's this kind of movement there that that, that pre exists. Yeah. You know the sort of domestication. It's like no, there's no movement other than its instantiation of oppositions. Right. That's it. Right. 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 Yeah. It's not. It's not a transcendental ground of identity. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. It is the movement right. of identity or right? of identification right. of exclusion. Right. Identification. Right. Opposition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's heady shit, right? Like that. That become that's. I mean, that's to me where I turn to Deleuze in terms of the ver like. Honestly, that's the moment where I'm like, ah, Deleuze is easier for me to grasp on this, to think of the virtual dimension that doesn't precede the actual, is nothing other than its instantiate, you know, mm -hmm. that just becomes easier for me to think there. Right. Well, I was just going to say that... Spinoza's know, God, by the way, I just, real, I just realized that. That's why he likes Spinoza. Mm -hmm. it's, that's the whole relation of God and substance. It, infinite... You know? Like 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 infinite potentiality, but but you know, infinite self differentiating yeah. yeah infinite yeah. self differentiating imminence mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> that's yeah. that sounded really just, heady just but to, just to clarify as long as that's something as a about. clarifying aside it's infinite <laughs> yes. self differentiating difference is that it imminence oh, imminence, imminence. Uh, sorry. Yeah. 
I didn't want to fuck that um, one up. The scary thing is I followed that. Like, uh, I need right, to yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does get, like, look, one thing that Derrida demonstrates over and over and over again, this is sort of like the, 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 the exhaustive, you know, move of, of, of um, something like uh, deconstruction, is that, like, no binary holds, no, nothing, no, no, yeah, no opposition right. holds, yeah. you know, given the right kind of scrutiny, everything falls apart, and, you know, there's a certain existential terror with that, that sort of just sort of, like, taps into a very long project of wanting to found some kind of foundation, you could probably crystallize that in something like in um, Descartes, mm -hmm. uh, and then you know that leads to the question of like, all right, you know, maybe like some like Richard Rorty or like pragmatism or something like that. We're like, all right, well, or Camus, right? Forget about finding the grounds. Find the provisional grounds that allow for a stabilizing world to to emerge. Something that you yeah. can, yeah. you know, something that you can live with. And okay, so that makes a certain amount of sense. Um, except for I don't think they're grounds, right? Like they're I think grounds. performativity. Yeah, like even even um, provisional grounds doesn't go far enough. I, I think agree. like the very concept of performativity does away with that because you're never returning even to the same provisional grounds. No, is yeah. is that like I, I think we have to just sort of like radically amp up repetition. Know, the, That's why repetition becomes the yeah. key word, right? The right. it's it's not a ground; it's a repetition. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's yes. an iteration of a pre-existing yeah. performative. It's not it's not a ground. We act as if. I mean, that is one of the su ways of substantivizing it. You know, but it, but for instance, it's like some of the shit does stick. Paternalism sticks. Yeah. Right. Like, mm -hmm. but it sticks. But not no, it doesn't. As a ground. Yeah. Right. Right. It stay. I mean, it sticks differentially, but like it, it doesn't stick as a ground. It sticks as a repetition of mm -hmm. a hierarchical dynamic uh -huh. that is instantiated and undercut in its instantiation every time. And yet, nevertheless, has a resonance. Right. Like yeah. you can look around like we can look around at the ways that we think of things. And the primary way we think of, you know, generativity is fatherhood. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, yeah. And so it has that that kind of force. And that's the extent to which it just creates fucking fundamentally how we think, how we desire, how we, you know, all of those things are constituted. But I would say things. not fundamentally, just because what a father is changes every single time that, right, yeah. that the generativity right. changes. Like, it really matters if you imagine, you know, like the generativity as, you know, like um, Venus sprouting from the head of, of Zeus right. or the sort of like through the mediation of the womb and the, and the externalized mother or like what's interesting, you know, like one bit here and, and hopefully we can talk about it this time or next time is um, the relationship that Derrida creates between the logos and the father and the dependency of the father on the logos and the sort yeah, of like, right. you know, the problematics of, of that, you know, all the heavy quotation marks, you know, um, um, being employed here. Uh, the metaphoricity of that, if it is a metaphor, of that father-son relationship. Because in each one of these repetitions, the, the, the location, the function, the value, the worth of the father is made differently, right? So like you're like, look, it doesn't have to run out according to hierarchy. Um, it doesn't have to be run out according to, to, to patriarchy. Um, and I would go even further. It's like, and it never, there's no stable thing called patriarchy that can be repeated right. as a same. Mm -hmm. It's only ever being remade, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, 
But it's but, being remade with, within certain parameters. I mean, that's the thing. Like, so I, I still want to hold on that there is a sense of stabilization in, in the process of the sort of self-differentiation as yeah. well, right? Like, so there are yeah. different kinds. So this is the territorialization detail. Like, you mm-hmm. know, becoming territorialized isn't the worst thing that can happen to you, right? Like, mm-hmm. becoming deterritorialized is death, right? Like, this sort mm-hmm. of absolute sort mm-hmm. of chaos thing. And that there is a sense of stability in the inheritance or in mm-hmm. the repetition mm-hmm. uh, that is that is crucial. And, and again, you're totally right to say, and simultaneous with a self-differentiation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and it's that's that's where the condition of impossible the condition of possibility is simultaneous. Simul- it's hard to really think that it is simultaneously yeah. the condition of impossibility. Mm-hmm. It's not well, like you instantiate something and then it falls apart. You know. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, one, I think we could turn to the reading writing stuff as the same as a way of thinking that dynamic. But yeah. two, the yeah. other things is it doesn't happen within a confines. It doesn't happen like within parameters and it's like that that very concept of stability that is really interesting to me uh like along like think about you know things that we generally think about along the the general specific um line like like genre or like trope or like archetype right and we're like oh well this is a repetition of the you know edible complex or you know or um but you know what Deleuze might call like molar entities right the um and I do think that that's the mechanism of stability, but I just think that the way that we think about stability, the metaphors that we're using are wrong because yeah. it's not about a same coming through. It's not about a hierarchical transcendent you know, pattern being then cookie cuttered on top of something, right? Yeah. Because right. You know, I think we have to think about the, the, the genre, the genus as being subject to transformation and as iterative that when you say like you know take a trope like the edible complex like the you know exacerbated mother whatever like yeah. it's like there is a kind of there's i always describe it as like a kind of stickiness like there is like a recognizability yeah. right you can sort of like yeah. you, you know you can take all the blurred edges and you can snap them into place I'm like yeah i recognize that right yeah. but it right. is not the same thing getting instantiated over and over no again. no i mean it has yeah. to be made the genre for instance has to be made in the first instance and then has to be remade perpetually in order for there to be an existing genre and you could genre. you could translate that to like even just the notion of of selfhood as a genre of being like mm-hmm. and hegel does this really well like um the te- what what he basically articulates is that there's a there's a series of enduring pesky tendencies you know that that change right but the the tendency kind of holds so like there's a tendency towards stabilization and you can think of that in terms of uh, subjectivity like what is what does the subject do it isolates itself it establishes some sort of boundary right and it it creates performatively an identity um but of course as you know as we all know that's that's a perpetual per- performative movement that has no foundation right. or ground right you're just that's saying right. the i like i am myself right. over and over and over again and of course you change but nevertheless there is still but a so subject. does the I, right? So do, so does yeah, the the generic right. thing being changed as well. Like I mean to yeah. I, I mean I think yeah. it's so hard not to use transcendental language when talking about this kind of stuff. It's, as if you know the the genre 
you know, exists, hovers above, you know, its its instantiations. And it is where, you know, like the, to lose instance into the flat playing makes a whole lot more sense where you can imagine something like the eye as, I think you were talking, I, you were just saying this, Nate, as like a, a glut or an intersection that, that like, it has, a, I don't know, a certain gravitational pull to it, but every single time, you know, there's any repetition, any kind of, anything traffics across it, the entirety of the eye changes, right? I mean, by you know, it might just be a single, you know, like tiny little change, but that would ripple throughout the entire notion of the eye. Like, you know, the right. eye is not the eye is not the eye. Right. This is like we're like forget about the law but, of the excluded middle, middle, the logic of identity. Mm-hmm. Identity right. being the other one, yeah. But but for instance, I, I get in I, I mean, I guess I'm just kind of trying to hold on to or insist upon the importance of a continuity through those iterations uh, rather than... So, for instance, what, what doesn't happen is you don't wake up one day and live in a different social structure, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't... In other words, we don't just... Yeah. Like, it's not an absolutely different... Like, there's a, there is a... I mean, you just use the word tendency or a trend or a disposition or a style. Like, the, and yes, every iteration is transformative, even if some sort of mind... Like, incredibly small, but... And that's certainly true. And yet... It's always working in relationship to a prior uh, re- mm-hmm. repetition that it takes to be it takes itself to be repeating in a uh, uh, a recognizable, identifiable way, mm-hmm. right? It's never just like okay, well, I'm going to be me tomorrow, and that's going to be something just yeah. you know right. wildly, wildly different, different right? or yeah. right. or, or, the, or a different political system or a different you know what I mean? Like there's just so yeah. so, let's, let's so take, much continuity. Take take differently, right? In the appropriative sense. In, in that, um, okay, so think about the dynamic between, you know, the I and me, right? And let's think about that as a continual process of territorialization, deterritorialization, yeah. or as a continual yeah. back and forth of appropriation, right? Maybe that yeah. will point us to the kind of stability that we're, we all, I think, you know, can't, you know, reason away. It's there somehow, right? Right, right? So, okay, so the I does not hover above me, right? It does not, every right. time I use I, I am not invoking an archetypical typical I that then like, you know, then cookie cutters me according to its logic, right? Mm, right. Um, you'd have to think about the I as operating on the same plane as as the appropriative, like as the thing that it appropriates, the That's me, right. I and me, That's right. right? Okay, so then... Now I'm going to turn to Nietzsche for this. Is that like you know the the appropriation is always operative in, in terms of active and reactive force. The like in terms of the eye as an active force, right? There is the like as a performative force. The eye takes hold of the thing and um, and expresses its power through it, right? So in other words, I am subject to the eye, right? The form of the eye. Yeah. Okay, and then that, uh, and then that interaction, you know, like the the reactivity of that exchange, then has a ripple effect back on, back onto the eye. But also, you got, I I see what you're doing. You're creating a fucking diagram like that thing from I Logic know. of Sense that you did, aren't you? That's what you're actually well, doing right now. I just I, well, I didn't know I was. Ripple. I didn't know that I was doing it, but I feel like I have to do it now. <laughs> That's just my, yeah. You're doing. Yeah. Right? You're doing that. Right, no, you're right. With... <laughs> well, no, no, yeah, you're right. This is the logic of sense battery thing, right? Yeah. It is. Yeah. 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 
It's yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> okay, well, that could actually be helpful now that I That's know because cool. I, I, I have no idea where I'm heading. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, no, this. no, That's but cool. like. But I think we'd also have to think about that not as being a unidirectional relationship in that, you know, the, the I can, is, can be performatively active, right? Take a hold of something else and express its power through it. And then it can also be performatively reactive. Something else takes a hold of it, right? Like, I don't know, and, grammar. And that's the sense, yeah, but see, that's the sense in which, and this will feed Nate uh, perfectly, is like... The problem is thinking relationally, right? Like, because relation presupposes the terms, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. like, if this is this is prior and prior not temporally or not, it's not pr- prior is the wrong word. It's like, it's prior to relationality. Like, mm. relationality is like the secondary sort of manifestation. It's the, con- it's the way consciousness makes sense of these things, right? right? Like, we're not even talking about relations, right? We, we're just mm-hmm. talking about a kind of... Uh, um, I don't even know how one would think about what's prior to relations, or if we can. I mean, maybe that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I... But like, but it just feeds your broad thing. It's like relational ontology. That's so fucking. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like... Well, one of the one of the problems I think, at least from this quasi Hegelian orientation that I kind of take, is that like the subject, if you can take that as a provisionally as a thing that exists. If, if the, yeah. the subject in Hegel desires, not consciously, unconsciously, whatever you want to call it, non-consciously, both yeah. consistency and inconsistency simultaneously. And this is what, right. this is what, like, so right, like in Hegel, life requires disunity. Um, but the paradox is that the subject apparently or ostensibly desires unity as well, but without that uh, confrontation um, of otherness, right? There, that's what mm-hmm. propels life. But the, the, the weird contradiction within that movement is that subjects seem to desire exclusion, opposition, right. and sort of distinctiveness. But without right. the constitutive indistinctiveness, there would be no distinctions to, to, right. to be had. To, yeah. to draw well, to like drive the, the desire. Right, right. Because it's yeah. like the the the, the form the, the the formless ground in difference and repetition, right? Is that you know like yeah. the the differentiating mark, the the performative move, right? That you know the appropriative act that takes from pure heterogeneity, pure difference, and then draws boundaries that are never complete, could not be complete, right? Mm-hmm. But still, like you know, like that that sort of that fold, right? Yeah. The, 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 is often the language for it. That fold creates a quasi-internal ecosystem that can produce something like its own desires. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, like those, and those desires for independence, right, are, you know, like, ironically, a, a death drive because independence would mean its own death, right? Right, right. But, well, um, that, And that's the weird thing with, with Plato, too, because, like, right, he seems to be desiring control, unity, all of those, like, essence, that sort of stuff, but... And like against the complexity or the danger of difference, but you know, ironically, like you require that difference in order to even have the facade mm-hmm. of identity. Mm-hmm. Or well, or, if they yes, that's that's in the second part. That's really that issue is really hit on is that right. the pharmacon is the word for the outside itself, and there is an implicit fantasy of pure absolute interiority mm-hmm. in 
in Plato, right. which of course is death, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, which, which you know, so the, the total non-relationality of whatever the monad uh, right. would be, right? Like, right. although in that sense, it's like the monad then becomes, like for me, if you actually push that logic further, why is that not Spinozistic, which is the monad would constitute all of life. Like the problem is that we think of monads as being subjects, mm-hmm. you know, instead of monad being like, no, totality, like absolute right. totality and in, in self-differentiation. Mm-hmm. You know? But yeah, I, you know, uh, there was a, there was a moment when you were talking to Nate where I just, it just occurred to me, I was like, I'm totally enjoying and hooking into this conversation. And like, I can't imagine that anyone else in the world would give a fuck about anything that we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. Like, seriously, like it's like, it's so not going to make sense to anyone. And I, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. On the one hand, I kind of like that. On the other hand, I'm like, what? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we're just going super fast, like super fast in our own internal lexicon of the things that, Uh you know, the three of us have read. Right. Right. (laughs) I, I would say there's probably like five or 10 people. Who who could okay. really key yeah, into it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we may know all of them. But it's great. It's great. It's great. I mean, there's a kind of, I mean, I don't know. It's like, if we just go back to the phenomenological register, which I recognize as one particular stopping point, but it's like that's intimacy, right? Like it, it is that sense of a kind of indistinction and a kind because every time you guys talk, you're saying things that I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought of it with that angle mm-hmm. or that whatever mm-hmm. inflection. And and that's really cool. Like I find that to be super generative and like simply fucking joyful, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I I do. But I also get that it's like it's pretty monastic, right? Because it is it, it is pretty separate, isolated off from you know even people who read this stuff. I think. I mean, I yeah. you know like I think that it's we share a lexicon that's really yeah, it's specific. You know, for sure. Like Hegel Deleuze Derrida, right? Is, is and, and, Nietzsche. Yeah. And yeah. Nietzsche, right? And, and look, there are, there are other people who have that lexicon. Not a lot. There are other people who have that lexicon. But they don't have the emphases and the terminology from, like, no. the way we just shifted to deterritorialization and reterritorialization. Or, you know, like, just shift the terminology. Right, you know? right, yeah. But it makes me th- it really does make me think, like, I kind of think it would be really cool to do a project on the relation between Hegel and Plato. Right, like, and, and in the way that we're talking about, not like what is the same and different yeah. between Hegel and Plato, but like this sort of the operation of, oh, and also like Deleuze, let's put Deleuze in there as well. Like, I mean, that would be a really interesting sort of thought experiment to think about mm-hmm. um, the ways, assuming on a certain level, all of them are kind of doing the same kind of thing, right? Like, yeah. Um, and are invested in very similar kinds of thinking as a s- sort of dynamic of self-differentiating, uh, ambiguous rendering, and also mm-hmm. you know solidifying like that. That nexus uh, as um, and not as antagonists like that's yeah. to me the important thing is not like how are they the same or different, but just sort of thinking those those three you know yeah. folks together yeah. would be really cool. I just increasingly cannot read. Plato otherwise than that. Yeah, no, uh, no, no. Yeah. I get that. I get that. Yeah. You know, and I mean, especially I, I that. that like Socrates project over and over and over is knowing yeah, himself over, and over. the only yeah, and the and his only ever response is I don't. And like I don't think yeah. I could. 
And that's kind of, and, and he never gives up on philosophy. And I don't think it's because of the failure of it. I don't think it's because, like, the, the, the promise of someday finally knowing himself. You know, I, I really think it's like, this is the coolest fucking engine I've ever, like, right. I'm baking myself over and over and over. So we again. have to do that. And I'm, I'm so with you on that. I'm totally with you. Remember, I've been saying for you, like, I, I long for the day when I could start the graduate class by saying, as everybody knows, Plato is the great <laughs> champion right, uh, uh, of rhetoric, right? Like, yeah. um, I think that's in season one. I think we started, <laughs> yeah. we started with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the, the next turn for me is we have to also then say that for the people who think that Plato is the enemy. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, you have to be able to do that same yeah. kind of move with, with that kind of thinking as well. Yeah. Not identical at all, yeah. but not simply opposed or different. Right. I don't know how to well, those begin are, thinking. It's that. really a difficult kind of reading. And I'm going back to like, because I have a section on Hegel and Deleuze. And like, I didn't want to take the Zizekian approach, which is just kind of like, mostly just reprimanding Deleuze for being like yeah. anti-Hegelian. So I didn't want to do that and neither did I want to simply say how they fit into some like how they're the same as you're saying. So you right. like the struggle right. was to dif- distinguish some key moments, right? Like that that might have resonances but point to different emphases, but then also right. see how they they resonate. And I kind of I also tried to do that with with Nietzsche and Hegel because they themselves they made those div- like Deleuze, Foucault, Derrida, yeah. they made yeah. that division. So but yeah. to look at it more historically and not not in that like sense of like a stark like I am departing fully from Hegelian thinking like that to me was productive. But it's it's really difficult to try to articulate that in an interesting way without falling yeah, into is. without falling into like, oh, they're the same <laughs> or compare and yeah. contrast. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's yeah. a difficult kind of writing. This is where I. This is it is a difficult right. I mean, I, I agree with you. This, yeah. this is where I like come back to that mantra of, of Deleuze, where it's like there's an anti Oedipus, like there's desire in the social and nothing else. Yeah. Right. That's it. And, mm-hmm. and everything is a configuration of. You could even really say that there is just desire, like. Right. Right. Like yeah, you don't even actually need. Yeah. This the social gets you multiplicity, so I get why they would want to do that. Right. Like. I think so, as soon as you have desire, definitely. you have. The social, <laughs> right? No, of right. course, of yeah. course. But right, there's just desire, desire needs the projection else. of alterity, and as soon as you feel alterity, yeah. you have heterogeneity, and boom, you're off to the races. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But and but but I think that you're right. Like, how do you write that? Or rather, maybe for me, the more practical question is, how do you write that and formulate that in a way that is doesn't simply rely on pre-existing instantiations of here's Hegel, here's yeah. Derrida, here's Nietzsche. You know what I mean? Like right. that's, right. that's the thing. Like how do you integrate and um, what cut them up in ways that sort of produce not mm-hmm. seamlessness and not indifference, mm-hmm. you know, but, but an, an, a non-recognizable sense yeah. of movement. I don't really know. Well, I, I try so to think yeah. about them as vectors of approach. Like Hegel yeah. is a vector of approach that is not going to be commensurate with, you know, Hegel writ large. Same thing with, with, with Plato. That's right. And then That's stage right. or, the or encounter. A collection, of, a collection of vectors. Yeah. Meaning not just a vector. Right? Yeah. Like yeah, exactly. 17 vectors. 17 vectors. So it's going to be the 17 vectors... Which is still not going to be adequate, yeah. but like, who, that's no, not the point. There's right. only seven. Like the seventeen right. vectors of Hegel and the and the, and the well, if it's if if Hegel there's gets seventeen, 18. there's eighteen of Deleuze. No, then then Plato gets thirty-two. <laughs> 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 